Good afternoon, everyone. Jesus said that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He also said to the church in Pergamos, You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So Jesus said that he hates the deeds and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? What are their deeds that Jesus Christ hates? What is their doctrine that Jesus Christ also hates? And how might these questions affect us? This is what I want to discuss in today's sermon. The answers to these questions should be of vital interest to us as we are specifically warned about them. And they are spiritual cancers which not only exist outside the church of God, but which may also insidiously infect the church itself. Because they are mentioned as specifically affecting in some way both the Ephesian and Pergamos churches in the book of Revelation, does not mean that they are not of concern to other eras of the church. The consistent message of Revelation 2 and 3, the messages to the churches there, is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what, what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we need to take heed to all the messages in those chapters in terms of what Jesus Christ wants to get across to us. As we will see as we discuss this subject, the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans are of concern for every age, including ours. Some writers from the second century onward sought to link the Nicolaitans with the Deacon Nicholas, or this deacon was one of those who was ordained early in the history of the church, mentioned in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. And among the individuals who linked the Nicolaitans in Revelation with Nicholas was Irenaeus, and there were several others as well. However, as the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia states on this question, the historical value of these attempts is debatable, and the paucity of information about either Nicholas or the Nicolaitans makes such a connection questionable, especially in the light of Luke's portrayal of Nicholas's Christian character. Clement of Alexandria, writer who wrote in the, I believe in the late second and early third centuries, defended the character of Nicholas and he stated in regard to Nicholas the deacon, he stated the worthy man, Nicholas, showed that it was necessary to check pleasures and lusts. And he went on to say, I am informed that Nicholas never had any relations 
had never had relations with any woman other than the wife he married, and that of his children, his daughters remained virgins to their old age, and his son remained uncorrupted. And it's also recorded in history that his son, his only son, became a leader in the church in his own right. Despite the claims of some ancient writers, to my knowledge, there is no clear and completely credible record of any sect professing to be Christian that named itself after Nicholas or used the name Nicolaitans in describing itself. It's not impossible that such a sect might have existed in the first century, but there seems to be no clear record of that that is totally credible. It is important to understand that much of the language in the book of Revelation is symbolic. And whether or not there was ever a specific sect that called themselves Nicolaitans is used in Revelation, that term Nicolaitans is symbolic in terms of its meaning and has reference to any who do what that term implies by what it means. It is a term for those who hate God's law and by their teachings might lead members of the church of God or other individuals into committing idolatry and spiritual adultery or fornication and perhaps also literal fornication or adultery. Here's what Jesus said in Revelation 2 and verse 6. He was speaking to the Ephesians and he says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in verse 14, in speaking to the Pergamos church, he said, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice here that the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality, is equated with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You might ask, why was the term Nicolaitans chosen? The word Nicolaitans is from the Greek word Nicolaiton, which is a genitive plural form of a compound of the words nikos, which means victory, and laos, which means people. So the literal meaning is victory 
over people, or could mean victory of people, but it implies destructive power over peoples. And it corresponds in its meaning with the meaning of the name Balaam, the name of the false prophet who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The word Balaam means a swallowing up of the people or a destroyer of the people. The doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, denotes a form of doctrine which is at the same time both licentious or lawless and oppressive. Balaam was a false prophet, as was mentioned, who resided in a town called Pethor. Pethor is believed to be identified with a town in Jordan, what is now Jordan, the state of Jordan, near the Jordan River, called Deir Allah. In 1967, an archaeological excavation uncovered in this area, the area of Deir Allah, an inscription on the wall of an ancient structure which was dated to around the 9th century B.C. The inscription contained stories of a seer or a prophet named Balaam, son of Beor, who was associated with various pagan gods. And many believe that this is the same Balaam that is referred to in the book of Numbers and elsewhere in the Bible that advised Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Despite being a false prophet, Balaam had acquired a reputation for being able to work uh, divinations or enchantments to foretell the future or to bless or curse people. And he was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel when the Israelites came into the area as they were being led by God into the promised land. We read about it in Numbers 22, where it says in verse 1, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks, lick, licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in this case the river Jordan, near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. 
Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless, and this is Balak speaking to Balaam, he said, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So, Balak sent messengers to Balaam to curse Israel, and money was transferred for him to do this, but God would not allow Balaam to follow through on what Balak wanted him to do. God did not allow Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, and Balaam was instead obliged to pronounce a blessing on Israel. However, desiring to earn the pay that he was offered for cursing Israel, he did something else. He advised Balak to trap Israel into trespassing against God by appealing to their lusts, no doubt suspecting that this would bring God's wrath upon the people. So he advised Balak to invite the people of Israel to a pagan banquet. They were invited to engage in idolatry by eating food offered to idols and also by committing harlotry with the Moabite and Midianite women. Now, harlotry was often a part of the ritual practices of Canaanite religions as well as other religions in the Near East and other parts of the world. And in Numbers 25, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So in a roundabout way, to a limited extent, Balaam succeeded in what he was attempting to do to bring God's displeasure and wrath upon Israel. In Psalm 106 and verse 28, it remarks about this, and it says, They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. The pagan religions in ancient times as well as today often included sacrifices and worship toward those who had died, individuals who had died, who were considered divinities. And so they ate these sacrifices to these pagan gods. And it goes on to say in Psalm 106 and verse 29, Thus they provoked him, that is God, to anger with their deeds in the plague broke out among them. 
So God sent a plague to punish the people of Israel for this transgression. So Balaam's doctrine, the doctrine that he used to subvert Israel, was to persuade Israel to become involved in idolatrous worship, which is spiritual harlotry. And in addition, in this case at least, the Israelites also were enticed to engage in physical adultery. This willingness to compromise with idolatry as well as to indulge in lawless behavior is something that God has constantly warned about. And just as consistently as God has warned against idolatrous conduct, becoming involved in idolatry or other lawless conduct, just as consistently, human beings, including most of the Israelites throughout their history, as well as other peoples, have ignored God's warnings. In Deuteronomy 12, in verse 28, God said to the people of Israel, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, the Lord God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to, di- to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, and do not add to it, nor take away from it. So God's instructions are clear, and this is only one passage of Scripture where God gave such instructions. This is repeated a number of times, various places in the Bible, these, these same ideas. And God gave to Israel a specific way, pattern of worship that they were to follow, specific laws that they were to observe in how they worship God and also other laws in how to conduct themselves in their personal conduct, their relationship not only with God but with other people. And one of the things that God forbade was any kind of idolatrous worship. Any worship which was a deviation from the way in which he said that he wanted them to worship him and which would detract from the glory that belonged only to God. And yet Israel again and again fell into idolatry. They forsook God's laws. 
they indulged in various sexual sins as well as other lustful and lawless behavior. And it was often their leaders, including their kings, their priests, and their prophets, who encouraged the Israelites to forsake God, to engage in such practices, to engage in the kinds of practices that they saw other peoples around them engaging in, to copy their religious ideas, their religious symbols, their religious festivals, and various practices as well as doctrines that came out of those religions and examples of how the Israelites transgressed in doing these things abound in the scriptures. Solomon, for example, King Solomon of Israel, led Israel into idolatry by building pagan places of worship in the environs of Jerusalem for his pagan wives. As we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11, Beginning with verse 1, it says in 1 Kings 11 and verse 1, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. So Solomon was just one of the many kings of Israel and Judah who led the people of Israel into idolatry through their example and through their influence. Later on, another king of Israel, Jeroboam, made two golden calves for Israel to worship his idols, blasphemously naming them by the name of Yahweh. Other later kings of Israel carried on this false worship, and most of the prophets of Israel during the era of the kings were false prophets who encouraged the people to continue sacrificing to idols and to commit other abominations. And it didn't stop with just idolatry 
one of the reasons that God hates idolatry is because it is a fount that leads to all sorts of other transgressions, falsehoods, lying, sexual sins, and various other sins, including murder, as we just read. Many of the nations of the ancient world become so degenerate that they were literally sacrificing their children to these false gods. Judah also, the nation of Judah. And remember that the nation of Israel was split asunder because of, directly because of Solomon's transgressions in committing idolatry and leading the people into idolatry. But Judah, the nation of Judah, which emerged as a result of that division of the nation of Israel into the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes, which became the nation of Judah, the nation of Judah also fell into idolatry, just as Israel had done. And finally, after many warnings from his faithful prophets, God forsook first Israel and then Judah, and gave them over to the hands of their enemies, and sent them into captivity. And the reason that God sent them into the captivity was because they were doing the things that Israel had done when Balaam advised Balak to subvert Israel by influencing them to commit idolatry and other sins against God. In 2 Kings 17, verse 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Notice that they had sinned against God by fearing other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. So what we're being told here is that the reason that God sent the people of Israel into captivity was because they had directed their worship toward other gods and they had adopted the statutes or the customs including the religious customs of the nations around them and goes on to say in verse 9 the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right and they built for themselves high places in all their cities Word, the word translated high places is a word that usually, not always, but usually means a place of pagan worship. And so they had built altars to these pagan gods. It says from watchtower to fortified city. 
They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. So they put up various religious symbols associated with pagan worship. And there they burned incense in all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations which were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Now notice what transpired as they turned from God to idolatry and the worship of idols. It didn't stop with just that sin alone. It led to the forsaking of, as it says, virtually all of the commandments of God. And then in verse 17, finally it says they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. In other words, they were sacrificing their children to their false gods, just as the heathen had done. They practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not repent, or excuse me, did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Now, keep in mind that what happened to Israel, what led God to reject them and to destroy them as a, as a nation, to send them into captivity, were the same sins that Balaam had advised Balak to tempt the Israelites into committing. And so... What we see here is that the sins associated with Balaam 
are not limited to just one sliver of time in history, nor even to just a few relatively brief periods of history. These sins that we read about were a virtual constant in the history of Israel. You can, if you read the Old Testament, if you haven't read it, you need to read it, and if you have read it, you need to read it again. Take note of what the Israelites did on a continuing basis. They served idols. They served false gods. They compromised with idolatry. They committed sexual sins. They transgressed in lying, cheating, committing fraud, in abuse of the weak and the impoverished and the those who were helpless in their society, the widows, the orphans, and others. And those sins were prevalent throughout the history of Israel, and they've been prevalent throughout the history of mankind and continue to be prevalent today, both among the physical descendants of Israel as well as the rest of the nations of the earth. The prophet Micah, in warning the people of Israel and Judah near the time when the Assyrians took Israel into captivity, that was when Micah prophesied during the days of Nehemiah and other kings around that time, he advised, uh, Micah advised the people of Israel to remember the incidents involving Balak and Balaam, showing that those incidents were directly relevant to the prophecies that he was uttering, the warnings that he was issuing to the people of Israel, what God was going to do to them because of their sins. And he advised them to remember what had happened in the wilderness with Balak and Balaam. In Micah 8 and verse 5, he said, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. God wants us to remember what happened. He wants us to remember it so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. It goes on to say in verse 8 of Micah 6, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires. That's the essence of his law. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Goes on to say, though, in verse 9, The Lord's voice cry, uh, cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? and the short measure that is an abomination. It's talking about people uh, 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 accumulating wealth through wicked conduct, through fraud and deceit and cheating 
and lie. It's talking about fraudulent business dealings. And it goes on to say, Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Again, it's talking about fraudulent business dealings, cheating and lying. For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. This is what idolatry leads to, this type of society. Therefore I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away but shall not save them. And what you do, rescue, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. Omri was one of the kings of Israel who continued to lead in Israel in idolatrous practices. All the works of Ahab's house are done. Ahab was another wicked king of Israel who was an idolater and who led the people into idolatry along with his wicked wife Jezebel. Now, it's interesting here that Ahab and his works are done, are mentioned here in connection in the same chapter with the doctrine of Balaam. Because we also read in the book of Revelation about a Jezebel who, whose basic influence on the church of God is the same as that of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. These, are, these terms, Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam, the teachings of Jezebel are all various ways of describing the same type of conduct and behavior, the same lies, the same idolatrous influences are at work in all of those. It says, All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants of hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Now these prophecies, this prophecy of Micah and similar prophecies that we read throughout the Old Testament, that we also read about in the New Testament, are not just for ancient times. They're not just ancient history. These same prophecies apply to us today. They are warnings for us. They are warnings for our nation and our world. And they apply in, the, in their warnings to every era of history and every era of the church of God, including today's. During the era of the apostles, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It had been at work for millennia, even when the New Testament was written. It really wasn't anything new. The mystery of lawlessness, he said, is already at work. And he was writing in the context of how that would continue down to the end of the age. The leaders of the church at that time, during the New Testament era of the church, the leaders of the church, the apostles, and those who worked closely with them, vigorously resisted and fought against the false doctrines of those who sought to blend Christianity with pagan philosophy and religious practices. And so that is reflected in Christ's statement to that era, the Ephesian church, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, Revelation 2 and verse 6. Now, note that it does not say that God hates the people involved in that type of heretical activity. Just as God loved Israel and God loved, still continues to love Israel, despite her sins, God loves all people. And Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind. What God hates, though, are the deeds of those who corrupt the truth. He hates the deeds of those who blend heathen practice, uh, practices with the worship of God or who indulge in outright idolatry. He hates such deeds because they are of Satan. And they produce, in the end, misery, destruction, and death. After the ap apostolic era, after all of the apostles had died, what had been Christianity quickly became corrupted with the adoption of a, of a variety of doctrines and practices that were borrowed from pagan idolatry. What had been viewed as the Christian religion forsook the teachings of the original apostles, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And they did exactly what God had warned Israel against, but what Israel did anyway. And they began to blend the religion of the Bible, the worship of the God of the Bible, with heathen customs and doctrines and traditions and practices. And so Christianity was subverted by the doctrines and the deeds of Balaam, the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the remnant, the relatively few who were faithful to the truth, after the era of the New Testament were increasingly isolated and forced into the shadows of history. And just fragments of their history has survived to this day. But even among those people, those who were led by faithful teachers, those of the church of God who sought to cling to biblical truth, the tendency to compromise and to be drawn into spiritual harlotry and idolatry, 
represented by the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, has always been present to one extent or another throughout their history. From roughly the 5th to the 10th centuries A.D., existed in Asia Minor and Armenia a large number of peoples known in history as the Paulicians. And among the things that the Paulicians believed and practiced was that they rejected idolatry. They rejected the the customs that were associated with the prevailing Christian so-called religion that had been borrowed from heathenism. They rejected the mass as it was being practiced as something that was idolatrous. They rejected the worship of saints and of Mary. They rejected Sunday worship. They kept the Sabbath. They kept the Passover on the 14th of the first month of the sacred calendar and so forth. But over the centuries, they were subjected to severe persecution. And eventually, as a result, many among them reasoned that they could pretend to go along with the prevailing corrupted persecuting Christian religion, as it was called, partaking of mass and other idolatrous practices, but at the same time secretly maintain their former faith. In other words, some of the leaders were encouraging them to commit spiritual harlotry and to become involved in idolatrous conduct. And this only led to further compromise and eventually complete abandonment of the true faith by many of these people. Their religion degenerated into a worldly compromising religion that was not faithful to the scriptures. And this actually appears to be specifically what Jesus foresaw and warned about in Revelation 2, verses 14 and 15, in writing to the Pergamos church. It was a specific warning about what later occurred in history, but it was not limited. The warning is not limited to those people or that time, as we've mentioned. It, it is a warning for all of us and for all time. The term Nicolaitan also suggests who is behind the enticing but destructive doctrine which has succeeded in deceiving vast multitudes and drawn away many even who had been among God's elect at various times in history. And it's not accidental that popular Christianity almost universally celebrates Christmas as its premier holiday. At the center of that celebration, supposedly the birthday of Christ, even though Christ was not born on December the 25th or anywhere near December the 25th, and there is no command in 
scripture to celebrate the birthday of Jesus. Birthday celebrations themselves are derived from pagan idolatrous customs. But at the center of that holiday is a character called Santa Claus. Santa Claus is is a diminutive form of the uh, of the uh, name Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas. And that is significant. Saint Nicholas is a name associated with ancient god Saturn. And that's very significant. In a book called The Story of Santa Claus, it says in face and figure the Saint Nicholas of the early painters, those who painted pictures of Saint Nicholas, says the face and figure of the Saint Nicholas of the early painters was not unlike the ancient idea of Saturn. In other words, what he's saying is that the depictions of this false god, this Saturn from ancient Rome and elsewhere looked very much like the pictures of the so-called Saint Nicholas. Many modern Christmas customs are derived directly from the Saturnalia, the winter feast in honor of Saturn. The Saturnalia and other pagan feasts that occurred at the same time of year and which formed the basis for the customs of Christmas were marked by debauchery and licentiousness. This is a statement from the same book, The Story of Santa Claus. The wild revels of the Bacchanalia, the Saturnalia, and the German feast of Twelve Nights. These were feasts that were all held at around the time that Christmas is observed survive in the merriment and jollity which mark the season of Christmas today. The wild revels indeed of the Christmas period in olden times almost stagger belief. No amount of drunkenness, no blasphemy, no obscenity was frowned upon. Now, he's talking about how Christmas was observed among supposed Christians. No amount of drunkenness, no blasphemy, no obscenity was frowned upon License was carried to the utmost limits of licentiousness. Master William Prynne discovered in them those vestiges of paganism which are apparent enough to the historian of today. If we compare, he says in his History of Maastricht, our Bacchanalian and New Year's tides with these Saturnalia and feasts of Janus, we shall find such near affinity between them, both in regard of time, they being both in the end of December and the 1st of January, and in their matter, uh, manner of solemnizing, both being spent in reveling, epicurism, wantonness, idleness, dancing, drunken, uh, drinking, stage plays, masks, and carnal pomp and jollity that we must conclude the one to be but the ape and issue of the other. Saturn was called by the Greeks by the name Cronus, which means the horned one. And 
in a commentary on the book of Isaiah by Yair Davidi, we find this statement. The god Baal was frequently depicted as a two-horned deity, and the name Cronus derives from the Hebrew Karen, which means horn. Similarly, a horned god of the British Celts was known as Cernunnos. Now you might say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, a horn in the Bible and in mythology both is often a symbol of power and authority. As we read one example in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20, the ram, this was uh, where Daniel had seen a vision and it was being explained to him. It says, The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Notice that the kings in this vision was, uh, were the horns rather, of this ram were symbolic of kings. In other words, symbolic of power and authority, of rulership. And goes on to say in verse 21, The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So we see that horns are often a symbol of power and authority and government. The name given to the tenth sign of the zodiac is Capricorn. The sun enters Capricorn, the constellation of Capricorn, in its, in its apparent rotation around the earth. It's actually, of course, not the sun that's rotating around the earth, but vice versa. But from the standpoint of someone on the earth, it appears that the sun is moving around the heavenly sphere, so to speak, and every month it enters a new sign of the zodiac or a new area in the nighttime heavens. The tenth sign of the zodiac is Capricorn. The sun enters Capricorn at the time of the winter solstice. Capricorn is Latin for horned goat. And in mythology, Capricorn is associated with Saturn and Satan the devil. In mythology, Saturn was the chief of the gods who was cast into hell. Now, you might put the pieces of this puzzle together you've got a a god who is identified with Saturn and Satan the devil who is identified with the name horned one identified with the sign of the zodiac which means the horned goat Who is it that is often depicted as a horned goat? Who is it that we 
know of as the chief of the so-called gods cast into hell. He's often pictured as in ancient times with hooves and horns. Of course, it's Satan the devil. And it's interesting that this chief festival, the Saturnalia, occurred at the time of the winter solstice and that pagan festival was adopted into Christianity and became the chief festival of what professes to be Christianity, even though that festival has nothing to do with the Christianity of the Bible. God said through Amos, I hate, I despise your feast days. It's Amos 5 and verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Now, sometimes in commentaries you will read that this is talking about the Sabbath that God commanded Israel to keep. That's not what it's talking about. This was a statement that God made to Israel, and it is not God's feast days that are being referred to, because by the time of Amos, who prophesied in the 8th century, Israel had long since abandoned God's festivals in favor of those of their own devising and had adopted heathen festivals and customs in their place, including the very customs that are today associated with Christmas. God told them that if they turned to him, they could take possession of true life, but they would have to forsake their apostasy. They would have to forsake their syncretized religion. Syncretism is just where you, you blend two dissimilar things. As with the blending of paganism and biblical doctrine. And what we have in Christianity today is almost any competent historian or theologian will have to admit is a syncretized religion, a religion that has blended biblical, biblical doctrine with heathen customs and teachings. And almost any book that you read about, any book or encyclopedia that you read about Christmas will tell you very clearly that Christmas is a custom that was borrowed directly out of heathenism and virtually everything associated with Christmas was borrowed from heathen religion. In verse 26 of Amos 5, God recounts through the prophet how Israel carried about the images of false gods even in the wilderness. And mentioned there is the tabernacle of Molech and Kian, your star god. These names, Molech and Kian, are associated with Saturn or Cronus. Here's what Easton's Bible Dictionary says of this word Kian, the name of this god that the prophet said Israel carried with them through the wilderness. It says probably the planet Saturn is intended by the name. 
Astrologers represented this planet as baleful in its influence, and hence the Phoenicians offered to it human sacrifices, especially children. Yes, it wasn't uncommon in not only Phoenicia, but other parts of the ancient world for human beings to be sacrificed to this false god. Ancient writers considered the chief god of Tyre and Carthage to be Baal Hammon, also called Melkart or Melkart, which is simply a variation of the name Molech. And they considered this god, Baal Hammon or Melkart or Molech, to be identical with Saturn and Cronus. This worship anciently involved winter and spring festivals, worship of astral bodies, and often human sacrifice. In a book called Documents from Old Testament Times, we read this statement. Milkart, the name of the god, speaking of the chief god of the Phoenicians, the name of the god means literally king of the city. Since the publication of the Rashamra poetic texts, it is clear that we are under, to understand this as meaning king of the underworld. Now remember what we said was the meaning of the name ba uh, Balaam? It was destroyer of the people. Remember what we said was the meaning of the name Nicolaitan? It was ruler of the people. And who is it that rules the people? It's the king of the underworld. In worshiping these gods... Israel was really, perhaps without fully realizing it, worshiping Satan. Most people today don't realize that in, in observing these festivals linked to Saturn, linked to Cronus, linked to Milkart and Molech, all the same deity, false god, that they are actually doing homage to Satan the devil the adversary of God yes Israel was worshipping a powerful spirit but it was a, it, it is a spirit who sought to lead them into disaster and ultimately, ultimately to destroy them and that same religious heritage forms the basis for the popular customs of Christmas and many of the other customs and beliefs of a Christianity which has become heathenized. The first of the seven seals of Revelation we read about in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation where Christ reveals or un unlocks the seals. The first of those seven seals is that of a rider on a white horse with a crown and a bow, implying 
rulership gained by conquest. Crown represents authority and rulership, and a bow represents conquest. And it says in Revelation 6 and verse 2 of this rider on a white horse with a crown and a bow, he went out conquering and to conquer. This symbol corresponds with a system of religious deception that Christ also prophesied of elsewhere that would use his name and yet deceive many. Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. He said many would come in his name, and yet they would deceive many. In Revelation 2, verse 9, and 3, verse 9, we read of the synagogue of Satan, or Satan's church. In Revelation 17, we're told of a great harlot full of abominations and fornications. And she's drunk with the blood of martyrs, of God's people, and extends her power throughout the world from a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This church of Satan that is depicted in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible is associated with a political system called the beast, which is also empowered by Satan. Revelation 13 and verse 2, speaking of this beast associated with this harlot, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his and great authority. Notice that the beast is animated by the dragon, the dragon being a symbol of Satan, the power behind that kingdom, and other kingdoms of the world is that dragon, Satan the devil. Satan is the god of this age, or the god of this world, as we read in Second Corinthians. 4 and verse 4. And this system, represented by the beast, with its false religion, has shaped history for thousands of years and continues to do so today. Under its power has been shed the blood of countless martyrs among God's elect, and scores or hundreds of millions of others have perished through its wars, persecutions, and oppressions. At the same time, while using the name of Christ, it has led billions into a way of licentiousness and idolatry. In Isaiah 14, this system under Satan's sway is spoken of as the oppressor, the golden city whose rulers struck the people and ruled the nations in anger. Remember the word Nicolaitan means victory over the people or ruling over the people. In a form of religion that calls itself Christianity but which rejects God's commandments and embraces idolatry in various forms, people 
don't realize the truth that they are really worshiping Satan. Satan is the one who is behind the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He is the author of that doctrine. He is the instigator of the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It would be a mistake to think that that influence is limited to people in the world separate from the church of God. We are warned that this same influence is to one degree or another ever present in the church of God. It's not limited just to the Ephesian era or to the Pergamos era or to any other of the eras of the church alone. There are many examples in the Bible and in history of how this insidious doctrine, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, can sweep through a body of people such as a church or a nation such as Israel or Judah. This doctrine dominates the entire world and the church of God is not necessarily immune to being affected by it, either collectively or individually. Any of us could be affected by it as well as all of us. That's why we're warned about it. That's why there's so much in the Bible about it. And the Bible is full of warnings about this doctrine, which is styled the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation. Well, there are a number of ministers and entire fellowships, even now associated with the Church of God, for example, who teach that eating food offered to idols is just fine. I know of the cases of people committing serious sins who were told by a minister that they must or that they were not to be allowed to attend church for a while and the people were indignant in sense that they were told that they could not continue in their sins in effect and still attend church people who'd been in the church for many years People aren't necessarily being told in expressed terms to commit adultery or to worship idols. But teaching such as that it's of no concern whatsoever if one eats food sacrificed to idols are certainly a significant departure from the teachings of Scripture. Remember that in the Acts 15 conference, the conclusion was, as we find in Acts 15, verse 29, and these were the instructions given to the church, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Acts 15 verses 29 and 30. But some have claimed that Paul unilaterally abrogated the prohibition against things being offered to idols or that were offered to idols. But here's what Paul actually said in Roman in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, "Do not become idolaters." 
as were some of them, speaking of the children of Israel in the wilderness, said, Do not become idolaters. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul also wrote in the same chapter, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, verse 29, If anyone says to you in offering you food, if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it. That's what Paul wrote. If anyone says to you this was offered to idols, in other words, if you have positive knowledge that food was offered to idols, He said, do not eat it. He didn't say eat it. He said, do not eat it. There's no truth to the idea that Paul abrogated the instructions given to Christians, not only in Acts 15, but a number of other places in the Bible. Peter warned There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And a little later on in that same chapter, 2 Peter 2, Speaking of these false teachers, he said they have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Notice that Peter directly warns us of false teachers who would be following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, the same as the way of the Nicolaitans. Too often we are tempted to compromise with the world, to go along with its customs, its falsehoods, its political machinations and frauds. Being faithful to the scriptures often requires sacrifice and sometimes, in fact, oftentimes it requires being subjected to hatred, to ridicule, and persecution. The world, its governments, its religions, its institutions, its customs, all of those things are at enmity with God and His way of life because the world is under the sway of Satan, the devil, and those who are in control are doing Satan's bidding, even if they are doing it unwittingly. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to understand that our battle is with Satan the devil. And Satan is firmly in control of what is going on in the world that we see around us. So Paul said, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. If there is ever an evil day, it's our day, and it's going to get more evil as time goes by. It says, having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Notice what he says, what he puts first here. He says, gird your waist with truth. If you're... If you're going to resist being overcome with these influences, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, with the weaknesses of your own flesh, it starts with studying the Bible, focusing your mind on the Bible and coming to understand its teachings and then applying them in your life. To stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. To overcome evil, we need to work righteousness, which is defined by God's laws, His commandments. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, implying that we all have an obligation to help in the work of proclaiming the gospel to be actively involved in it through our prayers, through our tithes and offerings and in other ways, especially through our example. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The way that you expose the falsehoods that Satan wants to palm off on the world and even on the church is with the truth, the Word of God. That exposes what is not acceptable as far as God is concerned. Paul went on to say, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We have the tools to avoid being overcome, to avoid being a victim of those who would destroy us. But we need to implement those tools and use them, those weapons of spiritual warfare. We need to remember that God loves all mankind, but he hates the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans. We must learn to hate and reject such deeds and doctrines as well. It is for God to punish evildoers 
as he sees fit. It's not for us to hate anyone or take measures, uh, matters into our own hands or try to avenge evil. We're to leave those things in God's hands. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Yes, we need to strive to be at peace with our neighbors, even those who are doing wrong. It's not our job to lash out and attack them. But it is our job to live according to the truth. To set a right example. As Paul went on to write, verse 19, Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is fully capable of handling things. He doesn't need us to do, that, do it for him. What he wants us to do is yield to him and his word and live by it. Not try to force other people to live by it, but live by it ourselves. In verse 20 he says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome. Nicolaitan means victory over the people. But we don't need to be one of the victims of the one behind the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We can overcome evil with good, with God's help. If we're to overcome evil though we have to recognize it and reject it. So we need to study the Bible, live by the Bible, obey God's word, love other people, but don't compromise with evil no matter what the cost.